China has emerged as one of the 21st century's most consequential nations, making it more important than ever to understand how the party is governed. Welcome to Pekingology, the podcast that unpacks China's evolving political system. I'm Jude Blanchett, the Freeman Chair in China Studies at CSIS, and this week I'm joined by George Washington University's David Shambaugh to discuss his new book, China's Leaders, From Mao Till Now. David, thanks for joining the podcast. My pleasure, Jude. Thank you for inviting me. So I thought we'd start with a, a basic question, but also your very first sentence of your book, which is this, I just think, fantastic tour de force looking across the, the spread of Chinese leaders from, from Mao Zedong straight up to the present. And you open the book by saying, leaders matter in all political systems, but in some they matter much more. And I notice, you know, many analysts note this critical importance of Leninism in, in China's political system. But I was struck by your a subsequent observation you made where you said that while one would expect a great deal of continuity across China's leaders, especially given this, this Leninist architecture, which seems to enforce hierarchy, actually you were struck by the discontinuity across these leaders. So I'm curious how you fit these two together of what seems to be this kind of ironclad Leninism, Leninist architecture with this discrepancy or discontinuity across these leaders you looked at? Well, that's a great question to get started with. You know, leaders obviously do matter in all systems. They have agency in all systems, no matter how constraining the systems are. In fact, one could argue that democracies are more constraining uh, than uh, non-democracies on leaders. If you're in an authoritarian system or a monarchical system or an autocratic system, you're relatively unencumbered institutionally and even via uh, elections, you know, and parliaments and other, other things. So China, of course, is a autocratic Leninist system. And, um, you know, the system institutionally has stayed for over 70 years now, but there have been obviously at least these five leaders. I look at, at the five main ones in my book. But the system has been there throughout. I was surprised, as you indicated, I, I must say, when I start, actually started writing the book, at the discontinuity amongst the five. We know that Mao and Deng were very different in their approaches and in their policies. But actually going through them, I found, and we can talk about this individually in case of each of them, you know, I found that there was not tremendous continuity to Jiang Zemin, Hu Jintao, and Xi Jinping. So if you look at these five, they actually had a very different leadership styles. And they actually had different, I would say, emphases in their policies. Not necessarily different policies, but different emphases. But nonetheless, they all had to work within uh, the system, the Leninist system. Now, to be sure, in Mao's case, he sought to tear down that system and destroy it uh, during the Cultural Revolution. But uh, he failed, <laughs> and it, it survived him, you might say, and, and his efforts, kind of like democracy under Trump. You know, it survived Trump. But let's just remind ourselves and our readers quickly, what is a Leninist political system? Well, it has several characteristics. First, what we call in political science, at least, a hegemonic party, you know, all dominant ruling party, communist party in this case. Lenin himself used to refer to it as a vanguard party. Another really crucial characteristic is the total penetration of all institutions in society and indeed all geographic spaces in society. It's like an amoeba. Leninist 
communist political parties are like organisms that just penetrate throughout a society and a body politic and all the institutions. And those institutions, the most important of which are managed by a third characteristic, what's known as the nomenclatura, which is a series of positions in China, 2,200 top positions, ranging from the heads of banks to the presidents of universities to the ministers and the government to the big corporations. All these people are appointed by the organization department, <laughs> you know, which is ultra-Leninism, of the Communist Party. So that's a third characteristic. Repression, terror, coercion is a fourth characteristic of Leninist parties over time. You know, Soviet Union, to be sure. All the classic works by Hannah Arendt and, and others on different types of totalitarian systems, you know, they all ruled brutally. Uh, so you don't have to be a Leninist system to be brutal, but indeed, as Zbigniew Brzezinski and others' writings on the former Soviet Union indicated that is of Carl Friedrich, their classic article. That's a key element. And then the last two or three things of a Leninist system, one is a Marxist-Leninist ideology that they take seriously. Another is what they call United Front co-optation tactics. So there are different actors in society, and um, the preferable way for a Leninist party to deal with them is to co-opt them. And if co-optation doesn't work, then they're repressed. But if you can co-opt them into the broad united front, uh, it's a preferable method. And then lastly, monopoly on information, you know, and censorship. This is the Orwellian component of a Leninist party. And I suppose the last element is, is the economy itself. Soviet Leninist parties are all based on, on the plan, right? The Goss plan. And China, its economy, and I would argue everything else, and I teach all my students first week of class, you want to understand Chinese politics, you have to understand how the Soviet Union functioned first. And I still very much believe that even here in 2021. So, you know, those are kind of the institutional constraints. In the first chapter, I won't go into it, but I also list a number of other normative elements that are unique to Leninist systems. So all those things are always there. And so whether it's Mao, Zhang, Hu, Deng, or Xi, uh, they have to operate within those parameters. But they each of them have agency, you might say, and preferences, and uh, as I found in the book, uh, discontinuities in their own styles. I just had a, f a quick follow-up question. How flexible is Leninism. We use that word often, especially in D.C., it just feels like a fixed quantity. You know, it's this thing which Leninism existed 50 years ago. It, it existed in 1928. You know, to what extent does Leninism evolve? And, and if we were to resurrect Mao's body or Liu Xiaoqi's body, would he recognize the Leninism that we're talking about when we describe the CCP of 2021? Oh, absolutely they would. Yeah, no, those features I just listed are continuities. They're, they've been there uh, since 49, inside the party, uh, pre-49. So they're constant and they're consistent. What changes is, you might say, the intensity of them. And that's where leaders uh, can turn up or turn down each of those features. All those features are constant. None of those, I would argue, have ever gone away over the last 70 years. But depending on the leader and the times, their kind of intensity changes. So you know, under the more reformist periods, Deng Xiaoping, Jiang Zemin, and Hu Jintao, we get a, a loosening of those instruments, those Leninist instruments, but they never disappear. It's just a, a kind of question of how strongly they're applied. And then under Mao and Xi Jinping, I would argue, they're more intensively applied. So this is what the Chinese actually call uh, the Fang Shou cycle, the Fang Shou Zhou Qi, 
Fan means to open, show means to close, basically. And you can study Chinese politics really all the way back to 1956 in the Hundred Flowers campaign through to the present with this fluctuating Fang show cycle. You know, relative opening and then relative closing. Normally, prior to Xi Jinping, the opening periods last about six to seven years, and they're followed by these kind of cathartic close-ups of one to two, and then they get back to opening. So it's sort of six years step forward, one year step back, six years forward, one back. Well, beginning in 2009, the show appeared under Hu Jintao, interestingly. Everybody thinks it started in 2012 when Xi Jinping came to power. Not so. It started in 2910. Actually, I was living in Beijing as a Fulbright scholar that year. And I could just feel it and see it in my conversations with people in the party institutions with whom I was interacting. Anyway, that's 12 years ago. 2009, here we are in 2021. So we have a 12-year-long show stage. And we're due, China's due for a little fang, put it mildly. But I'm not anticipating that anytime soon under Mr. Xi. Well, actually, in fact, I remember you were the first person I read who made that very specific point that the beginning of the tightening cycle started prior to Xi. And I, I forget which where you wrote that, but it, it was much earlier than I think everyone else was picking up on it. I think there's now kind of a revisionist consensus that it predated Xi. You know, one of the explanations for that is an external event, right? The global financial crisis. I think was it you had said the death of Zheng Qinghong was the proximate cause. Am I correct in remembering that? Yeah, I mean, and you're correct that the uh, global financial crisis of 2008-9 occurred at that time, which gave the Chinese leadership a kind of hubris and belief in their own model. Remember all the discussions? You were living there, too, I think, at the time, Judah, yep. the, the Zhongguo Mosher, China model discussions. And they really felt that, you know, they were being vindicated economically. The West was finally, as Lenin, in fact, had, had um, promised, the Western capitalist system was um, really in decline this time after Wall Street crash. Yeah, so there were external events. And, and we begin to see China's own, what's now become known as assertive external behavior, precisely in that year as well. 2009-10 has become known in the Chinese foreign policy literature as the year of assertiveness. And they went out and basically picked fights with all of their Asian neighbors. After a decade, what's known as the golden decade of China-Asia relations, they had superb relations over the previous 10 years with everybody. And many countries in Southeast Asia were beginning to think that this was the new normal and that China was actually going to be a good long-term neighbor. Well, during that year, uh, in the external side, they picked fights with Australia, with Japan, with South Korea, a number of the ASEAN states, the European Union, and the United States. But internally, you're quite right. I tracked this shift from Fang to show with the retirement, not the death, of Zhang Qinghong, who had to step down in 2018 at the National People's Congress for age reasons. He hit 69. And Zhang, we can talk about this later because he's really crucial in my book and in my thinking. Zhang was the, how to say, not so much the pioneer, but the purveyor and overseer of political reform post-Tiananmen under Jiang Zemin and Hu Jintao. Zheng was brought to the top from Shanghai by Jiang and was his close, closest ally and aide. And in fact, if Deng Xiaoping had not picked Hu Jintao to be Jiang Zemin's successor, which Deng had done, you know, which is kind of interesting, picked China's leadership more than a decade after he died, Zheng Qinghong would have succeeded Jiang Zemin. But he couldn't, and Hu Jintao did. But nonetheless, Zheng Qinghong 
carried over into the Hu Jintao period, and I argue in the book and really believe, not all my colleagues agree with this analysis, but I believe he was the one, well, I know he was the one who oversaw the analysis of the collapse of the Soviet Union and drew the lessons and wrote the documents that were unveiled at the fourth plenum of the 13th Party Congress in 2013. And that, long story short, that was critical. So Tsung kind of kept the Fong cycle going. But as soon as he stepped down, there was nobody at the top of the system to take his place. And in that space, a number of conservatives, including Xi Jinping, stepped into the void and shifted the political direction of the country. Why don't we rewind to the beginning? Because what I really liked about the book is, in addition to being just, I think, you know, five superb profiles of all the leaders, including, as you've done with Zheng Qinghong, I also very much appreciated bringing in some of these critically important yet often neglected characters. You know, Deng did not rule alone, Zhang did not rule alone, but we often crowd out these individuals. I thought what he could do is ask you, to go down the line, you pick a short a short label or short description that you use to encapsulate the essence of each of these leaders, which I thought was a really nice, almost shortcut for us to get a you know glimpse or get a heuristic for each of these leaders. So if you don't mind, I might in turn ask you to explain why why that label for for that leader. And of course, I'll I'll start at the beginning with Mao. You call him a populist tyrant. Why populist tyrant? Well, it captures the two main elements and indeed contradictory elements in Mao. I mean, he was, uh, you know, we use the term populism now in description of politics rather frequently in the last several years with regard to Trump and other populist leaders in democratic societies. But, you know, what is a populist leader after all? It's somebody who appeals to the downtrodden, the dispossessed and disaffected elements of a society and wants to empower them and represent those sentiments, those aggrieved sentiments. Even if somebody's dispossessed and disaffected, they may not know that they're aggrieved. Anyway, so Mao, I argue, very much was that type of leader pre-49. He was that type of leader in the 50s, and then, oh boy, was he that type of leader during the Cultural Revolution. He was very anti-elitist. Again, that's, and he was very anti-institutionalist. That's what the Cultural Revolution was all about, anti-elites and anti-institutions. And he went throughout his career straight to the masses. He went around or over, you might say, the bureaucracies. He leapfrogged the bureaucracies with his yundong, his campaigns. So he had a kind of innate faith in, the, you know, voluntarism, I guess we would call it, of the masses. So he was a populist in that in that regard, I would, I would argue. He was certainly a, a revolutionary of the Trotskyite variety. He wanted to... He believed that revolution revolutions bogged down in a kind of Thermidorian reaction, and you have to keep them going in a perpetual revolution. Again, it's what the Cultural Revolution was intended to do. He also believed in the export of revolution, as did Trotsky. <laughs> Got him exiled to Mexico and killed by Stalin. So that's why I call Mao a populist. Why do I call him a tyrant? Well, you know, he ranks in the top tier of 20th century tyrants with, with Hitler and Stalin. In fact, the number of people, Chinese, who died directly or indirectly from his policies far exceed Hitler and Stalin. Most of those, of course, in the Great Leap Forward, where 40 million people, are the best estimates now, perished. So, you know, he, and he was just a repressive thug, uh, using all the coercive tools of, of state power against the population. So uh, that's why I call him a, a populist tyrant. 
So speaking of shifts in Chinese leadership style, we go from Mao, the populist tyrant, to Deng Xiaoping, the pragmatic Leninist. I think most folks would not find the pragmatic label surprising, but I think many who don't follow Chinese politics closely would be surprised at using Leninist rather than, you know, pragmatic reformer. What was Leninist, you know, about Deng, or more importantly, where were, you know, many of us underestimating the role that Leninism played under Deng's leadership? Well, uh, to think back to the criteria I gave at the beginning of our conversation about what constitutes a Leninist system. So I would argue that all of those elements had atrophied, if that's the right word for it, under Mao, and Deng reinvented, recreated them. He reemphasized them. He really believed in the party as an institution of rule. And he himself had been the general secretary of the party in the mid-50s. So he's an organization man. That's why I call him a Leninist. He believed in the, the state structure. He believed, in fact, in the military structure. And he's the one who began the PLA reforms, although for him it was the last priority amongst the so-called four modernizations. But no, Deng was a Leninist. And if you think of his uh, four cardinal principles, I think that kind of some that dimension of his rule up. But no, he wanted to be pragmatic in economic and social policies. Uh, he wanted to get, and this is kind of contradictory too, each of these men have contradictory tendencies. Uh, in Dung's case, he wanted to get the party state in some ways off the back of the people to unleash their own, you know, sort of entrepreneurial instincts, particularly in the countryside, but also under Zhao Ziyang in the urban sector. But at the same time, he sought to rebuild the Leninist apparatus through the, both the party and the state. So, you know, he had these kind of somewhat contradictory elements of his rule. Zhao Ziyang, now we have to remember the, the Deng Xiaoping period encompassed a number of other leaders, beginning with Hua Guofeng, who I don't devote a chapter to, but Hua was in power immediately after Mao and for six years, from 1976 to 82. But that was a sort of transitional period, and we don't have to spend time talking about it. But Zhao Ziyang and Hu Yaobang really pushed elements of reform uh, further than Deng himself probably envisioned. You know, Deng was a kind of big picture guy, like Reagan and Margaret Thatcher, believed in, so he had these sort of meta instincts, but he didn't really understand a lot of the minutia of policy. And that's where Zhao and Hu, I think, led the reforms un under him. Jiang Zemin, bureaucratic politician. Well, I, both of those terms are important. First of all, I, I would argue Jiang was the first politician that the CCP had. Now, you might wonder, why. what do I mean about that? Well, politicians have to uh, represent and play to constituencies. And while Mao, you could say had a constituency of the rural population, you know, I'm not sure Deng had any real constituencies except the, you know, the institution of the party state in a sense. That was his constituency. But Zhang Zemin, <laughs> uh, he, he was helicoptered to the top, you might say, from Shanghai right after the June 4th massacre, much to his surprise and everybody else's and everyone, at least outside of China, but even inside of China said, A, who is this guy? And B, how long is he going to last? <laughs> Everybody thought he was going to be Hua Guofeng 2.0 and, um, you know, survive a couple. He totally transitional figure until some other strongman muscled, muscled him aside. Well, it turns out he stayed 13 years in power, 13, longer than Deng Xiaoping. How? So I argue in the book, again, my colleagues may have their own perspectives on him, but I argue that Zhang 
used his own background to his benefit. John was an industrial bureaucrat. He spent his entire career in the industrial bureaucracies, not in the party bureaucracies, even though, of course, he was a party member. Uh, He never worked on the party side until he became, I think, the party secretary of the Ministry of Electronics quite late in his career in the the 80s. So he understood that China, this is an important point, and I think for studying Chinese politics, China's made up bureaucracies and localities, right? Both of them are constituencies. Zhang understood the former, more than the latter. In terms of the latter, he certainly, you know, helped his the locality he knew best was the lower Yangtze River Delta. He was born and raised in Yangzhou, worked most of his life in Shanghai. So definitely the lower Yangtze benefited 13 years from Jiang Zemin's policies. But he really understood bureaucratic constituencies. And so what do you do if you're going to support a bureaucracy. You have to think of all these bureaucracies in China as individual fiefdoms and constituencies. So how do you capture them? Well, you, you first of all, you visit them physically. And it's I have in the book data on all of Zhang's visits to different bureaucracies over his first two, three years in power. Sort of meet and greet. Here I am. Tell me what you want. And he would give speeches when he'd go to each of these bureaucracies. And essentially, if you read these speeches, they are taken straight from that bureaucracy's mission. And you know, he's co-opting them by enunciating their their wish list, you know, for their role in modernization. And then what does he do subsequently? What any good politician, any system does, shower them with money and promote their people. So after he'd visit these bureaucracies and the party, the state, and particularly the military, he would shower them with resources and promote their people. So I argue he was a real, he was a politician. He understood constituents in that regard. He was a lot of other things. He was a very different persona than any of these other leaders. He was unpredictable, idiosyncratic. You know, he'd break into song. He'd quote the Gettysburg Address. He had some pretty fair English, and he had a bad penchant to comb his hair in public, but he, he was a real kind of um, type A, effervescent kind of personality. He loved, and he loved cameras, and he loved the world stage. He just loved going to these international summits where he could hobnob and have his picture taken next to Bill Clinton and Putin and other, you know, Chirac and Schroeder and other, other leaders. So this is a very different kind of guy, Jiang Zemin. So that's why I call him a bureaucratic politician. So it feels like as I'm hearing you describe these people, it does, I, I get this sense of these pendulum swings between personality types, because now from this outgoing, effervescent, unpredictable Jiang Zemin, you know, too young, too naive, we will now go to Hu Jintao, who cast a much dimmer light on the world. You call him a technocratic apparatchik. Why is that? Well, he was he was trained. His education was in the technocracy, Tsinghua University, hydroelectric engineering. By the way, Chang Zemin, also an engineer, uh, electrical engineering. So these two leaders and that generation of post-Tiananmen leaders are characterized by technocracy. And technocrats have certain ways of approaching policy issues, by the way. They tend to compartmentalize and deal with them piece by piece. They're not holistic in the way they think about things, and they don't necessarily see the connections between issues. They kind of want to fix things. So they're fixers. They're pragmatists in some ways, but they're very um, kind of piecemeal in the way they go about things, technocrats. Anyway, Hu Jintao, after he graduated from Tsinghua, he works for a year, in fact, at Tsinghua as a political instructor in the party 
Affairs Department. And then there's a kind of mystery. I couldn't find out what happened to him during the first 18 months of the Cultural Revolution, try as I did. So that's one of the gaps. There are other biographical gaps in the book you know, pertaining to other leaders. You know, we just don't have full information about them any of these people. But who, one, one gap is what happened to Hu Jintao in 66, 67, when the Cultural Revolution is raging in Beijing. Because he doesn't wind up going out to Gansu, you know, the far other end of the country until late 67, I think it is, where he works in a hydroelectric dam and in that sector in Gansu province. And then eventually he meets a man, the provincial party secretary of Gansu, a man named Song Ping, Sung Ping was one of Mao's contemporaries, very, used to be the head of the organization department, very revered and um, highly regarded party elder. So it's Sung Ping, in fact, who brings Hu Jintao to Deng Xiaoping's attention and gets kind of Hu Jintao on Deng's radar screen. And Deng, as I mentioned earlier, appointed Hu Jintao to be Jiang Zemin's successor. So that's the technocratic part. But he's very much the operatic. You know, this is a party man through and through. He's a product of the system. And, you know, he didn't have a, much of a real persona when he was written about by foreign, you know, scholars and journalists. Adjectives that were frequently used for him were wooden, stiff, the perennial question, who's who? Does this, what does this man stand for? <laughs> does he have a personality? And indeed, he was very wooden, stiff, and scripted throughout his time. Mind you, he, he read all of his speeches. He never went off subject like Jiang Zemin. You know, Jiang Zemin would meet with foreign leaders, and afterwards the foreign ministry personnel in the room would slip pieces of paper to the foreign their foreign counterparts saying, this is what President Jiang had meant to say during the last hour because he went off script all the time. He wouldn't stick to the talking points. Well, Hu Jintao not only stuck to the talking points, he memorized them and he delivered them. I've talked to a number of diplomats, a number of countries of witnesses. So very much the operatic. Came through the propaganda system, the organization department, the party school. So he worked through, you know, the party system, but in the ideological and propaganda part of it, not so much actually personnel and organization, but he understood that too. So that's why I call him the operatic and those two elements fit well together, you know, actually. And Hu Jintao was dismissed, I must say, when he stepped down, retired, you know, after 10 years, he and his uh, premier, Wen Jiabao, you know, their, their decade in power was dismissed as the so-called 10 lost years by Chinese, not so much by foreign analysts. I think history is going to be kinder to Hu Jintao and Wen Jiabao. They were not lost years. In fact, he had a very progressive social agenda. The, the two of them, that they came in with and tried to implement. They unleashed them in the first five years, but they've these uh, social equality, social justice initiatives floundered in the second five years. It's kind of interesting now that Xi Jinping is talking about common prosperity and social equality and cutting down the fat cats and so on. This was Hu Jintao's agenda. So Xi Jinping is, in fact, if anything, taking a page out of Hu Jintao's agenda. So I would argue that those reforms were well-intended. They were very progressive. They just weren't implemented. Uh, very well. But after all, this guy, you know, he kept the party in power. He kept the country out of war. He initiated the cross-strait relationship with Taiwan, which was non-existent before he came in. And he and Ma Ying-jeou put in place all kinds of exchanges. He opened extensive exchanges uh, with other countries. And last thing I'd say about him is he reoriented Chinese foreign policy away from the United States and the West to the global South. We see a new omnidirectionality, you might say, or this is what I tell my students, under Hu Jintao. He really began to emphasize countries south of the equator. And so that was a different emphasis for China under Hu Jintao.
So that, that leaves us with the big one, uh, Xi Jinping, modern emperor. Emperor is a fairly uh, aggressive description for Xi Jinping. Why modern emperor? Well, he, he rules in modern times, but in ways reminiscent of China's historical emperors. You know, sort of all-powerful, regal, fairly aloof, certainly respected, but feared, sycophantically revered his thought for everyone to study and memorize. He's in singular control of all the organs of, of state and military power. He's a believer in China's greatness and, and interestingly, in Xi's case, a promoter of its past, its imperial past. You know, whereas Mao, one can argue, use some of these same descriptions for Mao. Mao was also an emperor figure. But one thing he didn't believe in was China's past. He saw China's past as the major impediment to China's future. So that's what, in fact, kicked off the Cultural Revolution of the Four Olds. But not Xi Jinping. He sees great glory in China's past of whether it's three, four, five thousand years, and he spends a lot of time talking about it. Other things emperors do, Xi Jinping included, intolerance of insubordination and dissent, a proponent of ethical behavior, okay? We see this currently, and we've seen it really ever since he came into office with his anti-corruption campaign. The setter of ideological doctrine, as I say, he's got, you know, three volumes of uh, 1,774 pages on his so-called theories of everything, <laughs> theories of governance. I've got them here on the shelf. He's the interpreter of the past, just like emperors were during Neo-Confucian times, reinterpret Confucianism. And he's a visionary of the future with a China dream. So he kind of strikes me like old emperors in times before, but it's the 21st century. You can use some of these other descriptors, tyrant, certainly which I use for Mao. That certainly applies to, to Xi. And he's a technocrat too. He too graduated from Tsinghua University, not in engineering and I think agricultural economics. He's supposed to have a PhD, but that's, <laughs> you know, contested. Uh, in fact, there's pretty good evidence that his doctoral thesis is uh, plagiarized. So anyway, I see that's why I call him a, a modern emperor. You know, David, I, I, our time is running short here. I wanted to ask you, you know, one final question, which is you've now just spent all this time and energy doing this broad sweep of Chinese leadership. But critical to that is also looking at the structure of the party. You know, your 2008 book on the Communist Party was subtitled Atrophy and Adaptation. It's now 2021. We've just had the 100th anniversary of the CCP. We're looking forward to the 20th Party Congress. It seems like, or many of us at least, myself included, are uncertain about the future direction of the party. Through that lens that you've used before about thinking about the, the party's ability to adapt, as well as sort of the elements of which party capabilities decline and atrophy, how do you assess the strength of the Communist Party as an organization right now? Oh, it's a great question. How long do we have, Jude? <laughs> let, let me see if I can... Um give you a compressed answer. Well, let's start with the observation that Leninist parties all atrophy over time. That's the uh, starting point I argue with. I don't necessarily wind up with an end of history conclusion, but Leninist parties are like plants. You know, they need to be watered constantly and given sunlight and nutrients, or they will atrophy, wither, and progressively uh, corrode and perhaps ultimately die unless they use sheer brute force to foreclose that. 
that's my assumption. That's the assumption of a lot of the literature of political scientists who study authoritarian systems, but particularly Leninist systems. So, so that my previous book looked at that question in the 1990s, in the wake of the Soviet collapse, and also in the wake of the Tiananmen events of 1989, and the collapse of, shouldn't call them collapses, frankly, that's a misused term. These regimes in Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union didn't collapse. They were overthrown, right? These were uprisings. But the system itself was brittle by the time there were popular uprisings, so it collapsed. But you don't collapse just overnight. It's not like a building collapsing. There has to be uh, systemic causes. So the Chinese studied very carefully the collapse of the East European regimes and the Soviet Union, very, very carefully. And my previous book went through that in some detail. I spent a lot of time interviewing the people that were involved in the in that post-mortem analysis and read all their writings. And basically, there was a consensus that emerged out of those years, um, 13 years, really, of analysis. And that consensus was finally unveiled in 2014, I think, as I said at the top, at the fourth plenum of the 13th Party Congress by Zhang Chenghong. So our readers can go out and Google that, listen to that, or maybe buy my previous book. But the long and short of it is Zhang and the people who did this analysis concluded that the reason the Soviet Union collapsed is it had hollowed out from within. Its party cells at the local level had become dormant. Its leaders at the top were not retired. They were aged and incoherent, and they died in office. The bureaucracies had frozen up. The economy was a mess. People didn't believe in anything, so on and so forth. So they basically concluded that we, the Chinese Communist Party, could go the same way unless we breathe new life into the system, but manage it. We can't allow liberalism to just run roughshod over our system. We have to manage opening. So this is back to the Fang Shou cycle. This is Fang. They believe they can manage it. But then there was a second school who said, no, 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 you're dreaming, you're naive, you can't manage opening. Even if liberal opening or semi-liberal opening is a good thing, you can't manage it. It'll cascade out of control. The only answer to keeping a party in power is control and control of many elements, including the military. Xi Jinping was very much in the internal security service. So Xi Jinping is a representative poster child for this school of thought. So we, he, we've, that's what we've seen since Zhang Qinghong stepped down in 2018. And certainly since she became the leader in 2012, is control, control, control. Within a month, I think, or six weeks of she becoming the leader, he goes to Guangdong and visits uh, Shenzhen and honors his father's memory because his father was important in opening the special economic zones. But then he gives a speech in Guangdong about the lessons to be learned from the Soviet collapse. And it's a very interesting uh, speech. We've just this summer have the actual text has now come out in the context of a series of speeches on, by Xi Jinping for the 100th anniversary of the party. First time we've seen the full text of this speech. Anyway, he, he talks about the reasons it collapsed. And one of them was that the party had lost control of the military in the Soviet Union. And there was nobody, quote, man enough, unquote, to stand up to Gorbachev. But he also laid the Soviet collapse at the feet of a number of other elements. So Long story short, the party today under Xi Jinping and nine years in power, he has put Humpty Dumpty back together again. He's, he's instituted school number two, control, control, control. This man's a control freak, extraordinaire. Repression, repression, repression. So in the short term, yes, he has made the party stronger. I think he, his analysis of where the party was when he came to power and my analysis, not too different. 
back in 2011-12. You know, maybe he, he read my book. I don't know. Hu Jintao, who I met, told me that he had read my book and it had been assigned reading for the uh, Politburo. This is the previous book. So, you know, I think she saw that a number of elements of the CCP bore similarity to the Soviet Party and unless strong actions were taken atrophy would continue and they might fall from power. So here we are, nine years later, strong actions have been taken. They are definitely stronger as an institution, as a ruling party than they were nine years ago. My view is that he has perhaps weakened the party in the medium and longer term because it's not a responsive party. He's turned the party into almost a robotic machine, like a military, where orders are given by the commander-in-chief, namely him, and everybody has to obey or pretend to obey to Biaotai. So that's not a plant that has seen light and water and nutrients. It's not a responsive party. It's not responsive to the society. It's not responsive to itself. They don't have any kind of so-called inter-party democracy, much less you know, vertically, much less horizontally with the society. So I think he's actually, he may have strengthened the party in the short term, but I think he's opened up, he's made it kind of sclerotic and robotic. And this is a danger, I think, for its longer, longer term survival. Thank you, David. That was fantastic and depressing, given how critically important China's success is to the success of the world. I was also thinking, it's unfortunate you couldn't get that Hu Jintao blurb onto the back cover of your 2008 book or, you know, on the front cover, you know, assigned to the Politburo. That would be a that would be a heck of a of an endorsement. There is a photograph of me actually meeting Hu Jintao in this book. And it was in that conversation where he told me that he'd read it and had it had been assigned as reading for the Politburo. Well, this new book, David, China's Leaders from Mao Till Now, is uh, I'm recommending this left and right uh, for folks who are glimpsing this, you know, increasingly uncertain future about where China's political system is going. And I think really the only way we can begin to intuit some of the future trajectories is by a solid understanding of where it's come from. So this is an excellent primer for anyone who needs to gain a deep understanding, but in a very accessible way of, of how China's political system has evolved since Mao. And so just can't recommend this enough and greatly appreciate your time and insights today. Well, thank you, Jude, for the invitation. I'm really, I wish we had more time. These are complicated subjects, but um, we, got, we got started on them. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts. From Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 